This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Michael W. Smith is an American musician and three-time Grammy Award winner. Smith received an American Music Award and has earned 45 Dove Awards. Joy, positivity, and freedom have been hallmarks of Michael W. Smith and his music for decades. Please welcome Michael W. Smith to Health Gig. Thank you. We're just going to start by asking you, how did you become a Grammy-winning musician? It's crazy. I mean, I never could have orchestrated it. I always say it's a God thing, and I was at the right place at the right time. I grew up playing piano and could play by ear when I was five years old. I remember playing my mom and dad, Hey Jude, when I was eight or nine, and they couldn't figure out how I did it because there was no sheet music in the house to Hey Jude, and I could just be able to hear pop songs and sort of pick them out. But 15 years of age, after thinking I was going to be a professional baseball player and play for the Cincinnati Reds, that didn't happen. I felt like music was going to be the part of the fabric of my life. I didn't know the rules, didn't know how I was going to get there, but long story short, I moved to Nashville. And I waited tables and worked at Coca-Cola. And then I met a girl named Amy Grant. I started getting better at my craft at writing songs, and I started writing songs for her. And then I became a musical director in 1982. And then I cut my first record in the fall of 82 and was her opening act, 82 to the end of 84. And then started my own tour at 85. And here we are almost 37 years later. And 32 records under my belt, and I just pinch myself every day. It's a phenomena to me of just, again, being at the right place at the right time, meeting these people, I guess maybe just reinventing myself and staying current on some level. So I cannot even believe I still get to do this after all these years. Do you remember when you first met Doro and her family? Probably Kenny Bunkport, if I'm not mistaken. It was after I did Christmas in Washington in 1989 for your father which was a dream come true. And then all of a sudden he invited us over to the White House after the show. And then your dad just started writing me letters. He was good at that. He was really good at that. And he he would say, now, anytime you're in D.C., come by and see me. And I'm going, right. I remember at one point we're having a conversation and he said, we need to get you and Debbie up to Camp David and we need to get you up to Kenny Bunkport. You know, it could have been Camp David as well, Dora. You could have been up there the first Christmas. I think it was the last Christmas that your dad, your dad had just lost the election. And we were up there in December for, I guess, the final Christmas at Camp David. So it could have been there. What I really remember is being at Kenny Bunkport, me and Craig playing your daddy and George W. in a tennis match. And we beat them. They were so competitive. I thought, I'll never, ever be invited back to Kenny Bunkport ever again. But I think the whole family was there then. And I think that's the time that I vividly probably remember meeting you for the first time. I just feel like you've blended into our life for the last 20 some years. You've been to Greece with us, which was fun. And lots of time in Kenny Bunkport and all different places. So where you go, you always bring your voice. How's that feel to know that you've got this incredible voice and you change people's lives just by singing? And by playing the piano. Nobody plays more beautifully than you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I found out that the Bush family have to sing for my supper. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? There's nothing better than knowing that your music is literally changing people's lives. 
I've put back into my set, I'm kind of doing a nostalgic thing and I'm playing Place in This World, which was a big pop song in 1990, 91. I'll still never forget the letter I got from the girl who was 18 years old. She had a very abusive childhood, abused by her uncle in more ways than I could even tell you during this podcast and just an awful life. And so she was suicidal and she was getting ready to take her own life. And she was driving down the highway to go actually take her life. And then place in this world came on the radio and she pulled over on the side of the road and just began to weep. She really had an encounter with God right there on the side of the freeway and her life totally changed because of that song. And she's now married. Gosh, she's probably got grandkids by now for all I know. Mm. But you know, that song saved her life and I'm going, that's worth my whole career. Just that one story is worth my whole career. So very grateful. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. It's amazing how a three and a half minute song can totally change somebody's life. And the fact that I get to do it is just a dream come true. What inspires you when you sit down at the piano to write a new piece? Where do you get your inspiration? Ultimately, I think God inspires the music, you know, but I'm inspired by life. My kids, my grandkids, relationships, uh, world events that happen, you know, like Columbine, that song is back in my set, This Is Your Time, which is inspired by this brave young woman, Cassie Bernal, who was in that library in Littleton, Colorado, guys got a gun against her head and said, do you believe in God or not? We know her answer. She's not here with us anymore. She's my hero. And I was so wrecked by her bravery and her courage. Two weeks later, I'm writing a song about it. So whether it's justice or the AIDS crisis in Africa or Compassion International, just life. And I think when you do life, Certain things push your button, and for me, the best way to process all that is through my songwriting, and that's kind of how I do it. So Mm -hmm. all my favorite songs sort of fall out of the sky, and I just sort of catch them. Most of them are inspired by just doing life. Mm. You must not have a disciplined process of sitting down every morning. Is it when something inspires you, then you sit down at that moment, or how does that go? I think you just feel it. Like this morning, I didn't really feel like playing the piano. I went and took an hour-long hike, you know, at a park. Every time I've tried to push it and tried to make something happen, I feel like you're manufacturing something. And if you feel like something's coming, you stay at it. Just sit there and just improvise is what I do. And then I've come across a four-bar phrase and went, oh my gosh, I've never written anything like that before. And then all of a sudden, it starts to happen. As I said before, the song is falling out of the sky. I'll never forget writing Place in This World. It Literally, I just wrote it. The more I do it, you know, I get frustrated sometimes because I keep thinking I've been doing this for 37 years. And then, you know, you don't write anything for three months. And I say it every year going, well, it's over. It's been a great run. (laughs) Got to go get another job. And then it comes back. That's something that we talk a lot about is resilience. And so how do you stay resilient? How do you do that? You just don't give up. As I said before, you don't push it. I listen to a lot of music and I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. So I stay entrenched on some level. I don't think I'll ever retire. I might not be jumping and flipping and tripping on stage at 80 years old, but this is my passion. So I feel like this is what God has called me to do. So you learn not to get frustrated in the dry times. You think you live and learn that does come back when you're in the moment and there's just nothing. It's easy to sort of like give up and... You know, I learned a lot about not giving up Doro from your daddy. You know, he just was a, you know, such an inspiration to me on so many levels and just stay at it and um, 
the inspiration will come back. Our podcast is called Health Geek. We talk a lot about mindfulness <laughs> and we talk about what make people healthy and happy. And we talk about coming to mindfulness in different ways. Tell us about mindfulness through music. You know what? I think just being present. You just be present and you be kind and you be gentle and you love people. You love everybody the same. Mm-hmm. And so I'm mindful that every day I wake up and go, you know what? Wow, I got to wake up and I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. And I have this day. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed the next. So God, what do I do with my life today? And Mm -hmm. let me just be mindful of where I'm at. Let me be present on some level, give myself away today. Maybe somebody needs to told that they're loved. When I was hiking today, you know, I was up there, I kind of do a little prayer walk and I hike. I love this place called Radnor Lake. I just can't help it. Maybe it's just part of me being from the South, but I think it's part of what I learned from my mom and dad. I say hi to everybody and I passed 20 hikers. Hi, you know, (laughs) 17 said hello and three didn't say a thing, you know, (laughs) not a thing. Hey, how's it going? Nothing, you know, but I can't help it. I want to be kind to everybody. I want to be mindful of that. I think the world could do a little better at things like that. I think the world would be a better place if we all were mindful of just caring for other people's needs as much as ours. You said that when you wrote Friends, it came pretty quickly to you. I think now we understand why, (laughs) that you just can connect with people. It sounds like you make friends and friends are forever. Is that kind of your life? I think it is. My wife, Debbie, and I wrote that for a friend of ours who was leaving town. It was going to be our last gathering, and she wanted to do something special for him. And, you know, she wanted to write a song that day and sing it that night. And I thought that was completely insane. That's not going to happen. And she wrote the lyric and gave it to me 30 minutes later. And then we sang it that night. So here's a dear brother of ours that we love very much. We just decided to write him a song, you know, Mm. and that's how much we just kind of care about each other. You know, we had kind of have like a little community group that's been together for almost 30 years. I could write a song for every one of them. (laughs) You know, I think writing songs about relationships and things that are near and dear to our hearts, those things are easy to write and easy to express because it's authentic. And I'm Mm. sort of all about authenticity. What's a day in the life of Michael W. Smith look like? If I'm on the road, I have a routine and I'm actually going out this weekend. The group called the Newsboys, we're doing a little tour together and I have my routine. I don't talk to anybody during the day. I usually swim, work out. I have a little meditation thing that I do and study, have a little devotion. And then I show up and do all the normal things before a show. At home, I'm trying to not feel like I got to be busy all the time. I can't just sort of like not do nothing. Today, I got up and I sat outside for a little bit. It was a beautiful morning. It's gorgeous here, spring in Nashville, Tennessee. And then I decided to go take this walk. I love walking this place. So I walked that for an hour and then I came back and had some organic food for lunch and came to the studio. And I'm here in my studio. It was built in 1840. This is where I create. And this afternoon, I'll probably go see some grandkids. At 15, believe it or not. What are the ages of the grandchildren? 12 years old, down to almost, well, two and a half months old, three three months old, actually. So eight boys and seven girls. And how many of them live nearby? Ten of the grandkids live nearby. We have a family that's in Baytown right outside of Houston. And then we have one just three hours up the road across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. But they come home all the time and we're together a lot and I think those two families will eventually move back to Tennessee. I try not to bring it up very often, but we're all very, very, very close family. 
I know you are. And we often talk about community and how nourishing having close family relationships are and how really important they are. And clearly, it's important to you, too. I think that's key to being not only with your family, but, you know, you've got to walk with a group of people, you know, so we have a few friends that we really walk closely with. And I think everybody needs that. You need to surround yourself with good people. There's a lot of people who surround themselves with bad people and they make bad choices. And I was one of those guys for four years from 75 to 79, almost lost my life to a near drug overdose and just making bad choices. And you just surround yourself with good people and you walk in community with people. And I think if you do that, I think you can thrive and you can succeed and you can really do anything you want to do. Wow. You survived a very low time. I, I can't believe I'm even saying that when I go on almost lost my life to a near drug overdose. It's almost like, who was that guy? You know, or I can't believe that I got that low and I can't believe that I made those kind of choices, but I was not around very good people and I spiraled down. I hit rock bottom, basically what happened. That's what you pray for people. You feel like, oh my gosh, if they don't change, they're going to die. You just pray they hit rock bottom and then they can go, oh, you know what? I need help. Michael, is it okay to share with us what rock bottom was or what it looked like for you? It all started in 75. This is about a year before I graduated from high school. I was raised in the church, great upbringing, my mom and dad, amazing parents. And then I started making bad choices. I thought I could play with a fire and not get burned. And for a four-year period from 75 to 79, I just sort of smoking pot and drinking and just kind of doing stupid stuff. And I moved to Nashville in 78, joined a band and that's when it really started to sort of spiral out of control. And one night after a gig, you know, I snorted something that I thought was cocaine and it was not cocaine and it was THC or some tranquilizer or whatever, you know, but both sides of my nose started bleeding and my eyes rolled up in my head and they cleaned me up. I didn't come back for two days. Just I was so, I felt like my brain was so fried and somebody drove me home that night and I just remember crying out to God going, oh God, don't let me die. Oh God, don't let me die. Don't let me die. Because I believe there's a destiny on my life, and I think you've called me to something good that can change not only me, but change the world. And I knew that in the midst of doing all that crazy stuff. That's when I began to pray that God would do whatever he had to do to get my attention. Yeah. And then I became depressed. I became a very depressed individual, and I've never been depressed my whole life because I wasn't the most popular kid in school, but I was always happy, and I was always, I feel like I could conquer the world. I feel like there was no way I couldn't be defeated. And it was just more being positive, and I, again, I got that from my mom and dad. But I hit rock bottom, and then this one night, and I've written books about it, literally a linoleum kitchen floor in my apartment in November of 79. I crawled up like a baby and I cried. I must have cried and convulsed for three and a half hours. I think I had a nervous breakdown. I really believe this. Was, and I can give you every detail. It's all in the book. But I think the God of the universe came and laid down on the floor beside me and put his arm around me. And I haven't been the same since that night in November of 1979. I woke up. I felt different. I felt temptation by going, God, what was that? That's like right out of a movie. And then I remember... You know, I went to the publishing company here. I'm trying to write gospel songs and doing drugs. They don't quite mix. And then Randy Cox, his publisher, says, hey, I'd like to ask you a question. There's this gospel music group, and they're kind of looking for a piano player. I went, I'll take the job. And he said, well, you had not even met him yet. I said, I'll take the job. And I felt like that was my rescue. I joined that band, and they sort of kind of nurtured me back to health for eight months. And then three months later, I met Amy Grant. And four months later, I met my future wife, Debbie. And, and I just began to heal. 
I'm one of those guys that was lost but got found, you know. I love meeting those people. I met a kid on the road the other day who looked amazing and tell me your story. And he talked about being at some rescue mission. And, oh, did you work at the rescue mission? He said, no, I was a heroin addict for 10 years. Mm. And he got rescued at a rescue mission. I love meeting people who almost didn't make it, but they made it, you know, and now they have a story to tell. And that story can hopefully change somebody's life who's about to hit rock bottom. I love rescuing people any way I can. And I think my story allows me to do that because I've been there. I know what it feels like, and it's not fun. So who are some of your mentors in your life that have really helped you out? My dad was my greatest hero. Mm -hmm. My dad was the kindest man I'd ever met in my life. I mean, he just was so kind. And to watch him love my mom and to watch him love me and my sister and to watch him engage with everybody in his community, even in Canova, West Virginia, where we all grew up. And then they ended up moving to Nashville following me and my sister. He was very much admired by everybody. They all, everybody loved my dad. Everybody loves my mom and dad. I mean, I still get stopped at a grocery store and, and I always feel like I was stalked. They recognize me and it's no big deal. I'm kind. And I finally let them catch up and they'd go, you're Michael W. Smith. I went, yeah, it's nice to meet you. And they go, oh, we love your mom and dad. Oh, they're so amazing. <laughs> I'll get that once a week. It's Still goes on. But my dad, I have a mentor, Don Finto, who was my pastor at a church on Music Row for years. He's just turned 89 years old. He looks like he's 75. He has mentored me for 36 years. And Billy Graham had a tremendous impact on my life. So last year was a little rough. And Doro, I'm not saying just because your dad was president of the United States. I learned a lot from your dad just to watch how he would treat people and how he would take the attention off himself. And I remember every time I go to Kenny Buckport, he would go, what do you want to do? You want to play golf? We'll get on the boat. It was all about what you wanted to do. And I just love that. You know, so those three and your dad, having to say goodbye to your dad and having to say goodbye to Billy and then my dad just three years ago. I mean, you know, a little rough, but um, I'm a better person because of knowing all those people, especially my own father. Michael, what would you tell your 30 year old self if you had the opportunity to? I would say it's not about you. Hey, we all grow up, we worry about things we shouldn't worry about. And I remember back when I was 30 going, oh gosh, how many records did we sell? And how many t-shirts did we sell? Do they like me? You know, yeah. all that kind of stuff that you just go, ugh. And now as you get older, especially if you strive for things that are good, you just go, you know, what's really not about me. And it's about giving yourself away. I just think humility is the key. I think you can be a strong leader and be full of humility and change the world. We all want to be accepted and appreciated, but I really care less and less about that these days. But I've never been more freer than going, I don't really care what people think about me. One of my greatest goals in life, and I think I'm getting there, is that I will never, ever be offended by anyone ever again. How about gratitude? Being grateful is key to one of my, my kids, Anna. You know, her husband left her two years ago, just mm. literally left her for another woman, you know, and, and just to watch my daughter suffer and you'd want to just unleash. But, mm -hmm. you know, you learn to wake up going, you know what? We can get through this battle. And you wake up and not be bitter and not be a victim. There's so many things to be grateful for. Mm. And you just focus on those things. And then the things that are challenges, you know what? I think God can give you the strength to battle those challenges, you know, so it's just part of life. We all deal with adversity. I think those times of adversity sort of grow us up. But if you play the victim card, it's not a good life. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people who just play the victim card 
they're miserable. So you just want to go, just come on. And it, it's hard. You're dealing with lots of different people who've had lots of pain in their life. My mom's mother, my mom was eight years old and her three younger siblings, my real grandmother dropped them off a block from their house when my mom was eight and said, get out of the car. And my real grandmother left and never came back. Just awful. Man, my mom could have played that victim. She could have been a victim the rest of her life. She just chose at some point when she was a teenager, whatever, she says, I'm not going to ever let that happen to my family if I ever have a family. So she just chose to sort of turn it for good. And my mom's the bomb. I mean, my mom, you would never know that she was deserted and left. You just never know it. And so my mom just chose to go, I'm going to be a good mom. She's not going to be like her mom. And I'm going to be a great friend and I'm going to love life and be grateful. So I've learned a lot about that from my mom too. So it's really a choice to take responsibility for our lives and ourselves. Right. So if you would give advice for people to live their healthiest, happiest lives, what would be your top three pieces of advice? Faith has got to be the number one thing. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And it's a game changer. I think that is number one key, because if you know that you're loved, that God really loves you, not only loves you, but actually really likes you, it is a game changer. That'd be the number one thing. Number two, walk in community, walk with good people. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you find the most amazing soulmate in your life, you know, which I did with Debbie, you know, just but walk in community. Gosh, and then I think you've got to take care of yourself physically. I work out a lot. I'm not obsessed by it, but I stay active. So it's all that spiritually, emotionally, physically, all that kind of stuff, you know. So if you can do all the things well, then I think you can live a long and prosperous life. There you go. Mind, yeah. body, and spirit. Well, we are just so grateful really, you Mike, could come thank you. and be with oh, us today. Fun. So much thank fun. You. Give our love to Deb. I will. Hopefully we'll see you maybe in Maine this summer. That sounds great. Thank you all so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well.